When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations, book recommendation episodes, and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and endorsed, and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. In 2023, I am adding a new segment to my Tuesday episodes called Read-Alike Requests. Listeners can submit a book they loved and tell me why they loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads. There is a Google form included in today's show notes. I would love for you to send in a request. If you love to read, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content, including bonus episodes, and early reads and pre-pub author chats. For February, Lauren Willig's new book is one of my selections, as well as a likely story, a debut by Lee Abramson. The link to join that is in the show notes as well. Today, Jenna Blum joins me to chat about The Key of Love, her new serial audio drama. Jenna is the New York Times and number one internationally best-selling author of novels Those Who Save Us, The Storm Chasers, and The Lost Family. She was voted one of Oprah's readers' top 30 women writers on Oprah.com and is the co-founder CEO of literary social media marketing company, A Mighty Blaze. Jenna earned her MA at Boston University in creative writing and has taught writing workshops at Grub Street Writers for over 20 years. She is based in downtown Boston, where she lives across from Woodrow's Bench and is currently a dog mom to her black lab puppy, Henry Higgins. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, Jenna. How are you today? I'm great, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're back, and I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about The Key of Love. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to talking about The Key of Love. Well, this is a different original project for you, and I have so many questions. I have really enjoyed listening so far. I am caught up through episode six, and I'm waiting for seven and eight to come out. So let's dive into the whole process. I guess first, tell me a little bit about how you decided to tackle this project. Yes. Well, it was an invitation from my friend Jane Green, who is the uber best-selling novelist, like multiple digits of best-selling books. And she also is the fount from whom all good things flow. And she's always spinning off ideas in different directions. And at some point she asked me, did I want to write a podcast script that was an original audio drama? 
And I had never done this before and I didn't even know what it was. So I said, yes, of course, I would love to do that. And it turns out that what an original audio drama is, is an original fiction podcast, but it's like an old fashioned radio play. So it's brought to life by actors and original music and sound effects. So if somebody is walking up to a door, you hear like the footsteps walking up and then you hear them knocking. So it's like you're sitting next to a fire and listening to a radio in 1943. I think it's just fascinating that we've come full circle. These old radio shows, and we're now back to that same idea, but obviously it's being disseminated in a completely different format. But I just love that. I love it too. I'm actually the second program in Jane's lineup. She and Emerald Audio Network are doing this as a series of original fiction by women authors. So it's a women-powered network. And Jane was first up out of the gate, and her podcast is called Rainbow Girl, and it's about rock stars behaving badly in England in the 1960s. So hers is also historical. I think that mine, The Key of Love, since it's set in the 40s, shares that sort of original radio show mentality and atmosphere, maybe most closely with the form, but all of the podcasts are going to be brought to life in this really splendid, vivid way. And I'm so curious about the number eight, because we've been watching a variety of new TV shows, streaming shows recently, and they are always eight episodes. And I was thinking about that when I was getting ready for this interview, and that yours is eight episodes as well. There must be something magical about the number eight when it comes to these type of things. That's so interesting. I'm trying to remember what eight is in Hebrew. I think it means life, like chai. I might be totally wrong about that. And if so, everybody can send me a correction. And I'm also partial to the number eight because it's my birthday. I'm an October 8th baby, a Libra. But I think that it's just enough of a narrative arc for an overall story to really keep the timeline condensed and yet develop the character's conundrums fully and solve them. So I feel like it's a really sweet spot for a number of episodes. I think that's right. And my daughter and I were talking about it, especially in the context of TV you know, bingeable is kind of all the rage these days. So if you sit down, you can get through eight episodes probably in a day or in a couple of days, depending on your time and everything. But you get much more than that and it gets more difficult. And since the idea of kind of wanting to consume something as quickly as possible is now a thing, I'm wondering if eight is sort of the target there too. Yeah, that makes total sense. I have to admit that I'm kind of a weirdo. Like I have series that I am obsessed with, and yet I allow myself only one episode per night. I like to stretch them out as long as possible. So I'm a rationer instead of a binger. But I can totally see that if you were going to binge on a series, eight is great, right? You could do four episodes in the morning and four in the afternoon slash evening, and then feel like you'd had a full meal and then go on to your next series. So the podcast is no different. I will say that the podcast, The Key of Love, drops like a Dickens novel series, a serialized novel, so that we get one episode per week. I guess also like in the olden days of TV, like remember back in the old days. Exactly. Or actually White Lotus dropped every Sunday night and Yellowstone drops every Sunday night. And I am there with my popcorn, like waiting avidly for the new episode. So Key of Love is no different. You get one episode a week. Absolutely. And I think in the form of an audio drama, That is so much better because it's really fun to wait for the next one, but you could really do it either way. You can wait till it's all done and then just listen to it all together, or you can listen to it week by week like I've been doing. Do you listen to it? Yes, of course. Oh my goodness. I listen to it both ways, actually. So I like to listen to each new episode when I'm by myself. And the reason I do this is that listen to the first episode 
when I was out walking my dog, which is how I listen to most podcasts. And I made a spectacle of myself on the street because I was listening to the story being brought to life by these incredible actors. The, the podcast is about singing. There's a woman in it who sings so beautifully, the lead character, Libby. And I was screaming in the street. I'm like, this is the best thing ever. And I'm laughing, like grabbing my head. And of course I had my earbuds in, so I looked totally insane. And after that, I said, okay, I'm going to listen to this in my house or in my car where nobody can really see me being that insane. So sometimes listeners slash readers get to an episode before I do. And then it is so much fun because on social media or on my text messages, people are saying, how could you leave us with this cliffhanger? I cannot stand it. I can't wait until next week to find out what happens. And that lets me know I've done my job right. So I listen to each episode as a special thing. And then I go back to the beginning and I listen to them all cumulatively. And that's really fun as well. Oh, that is fun. And I'm realizing we didn't even really talk about what the key of love is about because I want to ask you in a little bit, what it's like, what you just brought up, because this is so different from a book to have people weekly reaching out to you and saying, okay, this was so neat. And I love this. And how did you leave me hanging? But before we do that, why don't you give me a quick synopsis of the key of love? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So my elevator pitch is that the key of love is about a chambermaid named Liberty Johansson, who in 1943 is fired from her job and Boston's Tony Back Bay, working at a place called the Duxbury Mansion because she rejects the advances of the governor's son, the unwanted advances. And she takes a job at the Fairmont Copley Hotel. And there she becomes the muse of a composer named Francis Key, who is tasked by FDR with writing an anthem to inspire the troops at this very dangerous juncture of the war. And Libby also becomes more than just a muse to Francis, and they fall in love. And this is all well and good, except... Libby also has a fiance, Clancy Armstrong, who's a Boston Globe photographer, shooting the war on the European front. And so the decision that she has to make between these two men changes not only all three lives, but the course of the war forever. Now I really can't wait to finish seven and eight. <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> I'm right when he's just returned. Yes, it's actually one of my favorite episodes. So that's what I wanted to ask you a little bit about, because I know you have written a number of books. And so what was it like writing this? Because you're instead spreading it out over eight episodes and you have to think a little bit about each episode ending and what you want to include. Just what was that whole process like? How did you approach it? Great question. So it was both like writing a book and not like writing a book. It was a little bit like an accordion. So it, it sort of expanded and shrank. The way I started was by writing a synopsis of the overall project. So like a one page description of what would happen from start to finish in Key of Love. And then I broke it down into eight chapters, because um, that's the way I think, but those are the eight episodes. And then I sent it over to Emerald Audio, and they hooked me up with a screenwriter whose name was Tommy Lombardi, who was great. He was a super great guy was out in Hollywood. And he and I were both sort of exploring this new medium together. I had written a script before as well. I wrote the screenplay for my first novel, Those Who Save Us. And I know how difficult it is for a novelist to cannibalize the usual way you work, which is with tons of description and just a lot of space to be able to create mind pictures for your reader. You have to strip that down in a script to just dialogue and stage direction, and that's it. And with a podcast script, Tommy and I quickly realized it's even more difficult because the only tools you have are dialogue and sound effects. And then we also have music in this podcast as well, original composition. So we then took the eight chapters, if you will, the eight episodes, 
and we gamed them out over Zoom and said, what should happen in each one? And I had that basic idea and we broke it down into dialogue and sound effects. And that was it. And Tommy was such a great collaborative partner. He would suggest certain beats that would make the episode more exciting. And we would either say yay or nay about that. And I would do the same thing. And the one thing that I do know how to do, I think, from being a novelist is to write a cliffhanger. Like you have to put a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter if you want your reader to keep going. And so that was something that I delighted in when I was working on Key of Love. I really wanted to end each episode with the listener hanging and saying, now what is going to happen? So after we had gamed out the episodes, Tommy wrote a first draft of the script and then kicked it back over to me. And I revised it and put everything in my own language, kicked it back to him. We went back and forth a few times. And then we gave it to the production company and they said things to me like, Jenna, you can't have a montage in a podcast script because it's confusing for your listener, or we need to put more dialogue in this sex scene because otherwise you're going to hear a lot of really unpalatable noises. (laughs) It was like that. And so um, we had a really good time sort of transposing the script into pure audio. And then there was this magic thing where the production company cast it and put music to it. And I didn't hear any of it during that time. Jane would sometimes send me like a snippet from the recording studio and I would hear the actors bringing my characters to life and they're sounding so great. And now I wait like everybody else to hear each episode and they are like a gift that arrives on my audio doorstep every week. I just, I find it so magical. Well, one of my questions was going to be whether once they started recording it, they had come back with any changes or questions but I didn't think about the production company reading it sooner, which makes perfect sense, and coming back early on and saying, okay, as you said, you may need to add some dialogue into this sex scene, or this isn't going to work so well here, or could you change it up a bit? But they don't do that once they start recording? No, it's all done beforehand. And I think there may be like little changes here and there, but honestly, my ear is pretty attuned, and especially having read this script over and over, like I know it fairly well, and I can't pick up that many changes. I'll give you an example though of what works in podcasts that doesn't work or doesn't work as a podcast that works in a script. So in episode one, and this is not a spoiler, when Libby is fighting off the governor's son, originally she boinked him in the eye and also gave him a good swift knee, you can imagine where. And that's a trick that her mom taught her. And that's what she says in dialogue. And the guy says, Oh my God, my eye, I can't believe you did this. And she says, My mom taught me a bucket full of tricks and just try this again and you'll get another one. And the podcast director wrote to me and said, we can't do this because what does a a knuckle and eye sound like? Like, what does a knee and a groin sound like? That doesn't work. So now she hits him with an alarm clock. So in that episode, you hear him go, boing. (laughs) The thing that looks really ham-handed on the page, like if you have somebody saying, hey, come sit over here by me on this bed, on the page, that looks ridiculous. But in the script, it doesn't sound like that because you're relying solely on that dialogue. So it was really, really fun learning all of these different tricks. I bet so, because that is interesting too. You wouldn't necessarily think about throwing an alarm clock, but then when you're thinking about the sounds or how things are going to be, you have to change it up. And it probably made you have to be even more creative than you already are sometimes. It just made me break my own rules. Like usually in dialogue, again, if you're writing a scene where a character says, like, let's say Francis, the composer says to Libby, come here. Like if you're in a novel scene, you probably know what has happened before and after, right? If he's saying, come hither, my dear, then <laughs> you know like what's going on. But in the podcast, you have to say, there's a passage when he says, come here, my dear. And she says, to sit next to you on the piano bench? And he says, yes, <laughs> that's what I mean. On the piano bench, I promise I won't bite. 
that would look ridiculous in a novel, but it worked out really well in the script. Okay, that is absolutely fascinating. I thought so too. So this whole thing has been, I'm glad you think so. And it's not just me thinking, you know, I'm such a writer geek, like really enjoying all of this new tricks of the trade, but it's such a joy and also a blessing for a writer to put another sort of tool in her genre box, if you will. So I'm really excited to have learned all of this. I bet so, because audio just seems to be completely booming. So I think that it is something I'm sure you will use again. And I just think it's so neat when things are going in different directions than they have in the past. I'm always for that. And I think it's really cool to see new, innovative ways of doing things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I totally agree. And Jane Green is an amazing innovator as well. And she's really dedicated to the art of the story, but she's not married to a medium. So when we were talking about how popular podcasts are and how audio seems to fit so well into people's lives, especially post pandemic, like you are really in your own world with the characters and the story when you're listening to audio, even if you're in a house with six other people or you're in your car or you're walking or a lot of people write to me and say, I loved listening to Key of Love so much. I was doing my housework. So I feel like I'm keeping people company that way. And I'm really, really grateful to have the medium to do it. Well, and it makes those things go by so much faster when you're listening to something. I agree. I think almost too fast. Like I, That's why I listen to the whole thing start to finish every time there's a new episode because I really want to luxuriate in it. So let's talk a little bit more about people reaching out to you after they've been listening. Is it really fun and different? And what has surprised you the most about that week to week? That's a really good question. I think mostly it's always a little bit surprising to me as a writer in any medium, but like how excited people are by the thing that you have created. And also with Key of Love, especially the most gratifying thing is when people text me or email me or message me on Instagram or on Facebook or on Twitter and say, I can't believe you left me hanging this way. I'm so frustrated. And I'm like, great, that's my job. (laughs) (laughs) I really want you to be sitting in place with your Ovaltine and your popcorn next Thursday waiting for that new episode to drop. So that has been great to hear how people respond to the serial nature of the work, which is very different, as you pointed out earlier, from writing a novel. Absolutely. Because with the novel, I mean, I guess when I do know an author, sometimes I do reach out midway through reading a book and be like, oh, I loved this paragraph or, oh, this character or this happened, but not as much. And I can see where with the week to week and people are waiting and they're so excited about what happened and they have an entire week to go that they might reach out to you and be like, how did you let this happen? How can you leave me hanging? Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit like serving a meal one course at a time instead of putting it all on the table, right? But I think that, and I'm so blessed with readers who write to me after they finish a novel, you're right. It is totally rare to hear from somebody who's reading in progress. And I actually really like that too. But I think that this form is almost collaborative. I feel like I am on the same ship almost with the readers and the listeners. Like we all listen to this stuff at the same time. And so we all have the same experience. And so there is like this great sort of comradeship about it. You've been doing a weekly wrap up with Kristen at K2 Reader on Instagram, right? Yes. Every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern, we get on and dish about that week's episode, endeavoring as hard as we can to not include any spoilers. And she's just a joy. And a lot of people join us. And that also is super gratifying. She is just a joy. And I love to talk with her about books. And I think it's really fun to see what you two are doing together. And that's such a great idea to kind of do a recap and let people talk about it and brainstorm or see what they think is coming. And so that has to be fun. 
Mm-hmm. And she has really, really good questions. Like last week, last time we spoke, she asked me about Libby's choice between Francis, the composer, and Clancy, her war photographer fiance. And she said, can you tell me a little bit about what kinds of love triangles were hot, not popular, but like were love triangles a thing in the 1940s when so many women were left alone on the home front and their men were off at war? I thought that was great. And she enabled me to provide some historical context. So really in-depth discussion, again, without any spoilers. Well, that was another thing I wanted to ask you was about your research from this time period, what you had to look into to be able to include. So for this one, I mean, you know, I'm a historical novelist. I wrote Those Who Save Us and The Lost Family, both of which were World War II novels. And there isn't a lot of actual war in the key of love, although we do join Clancy overseas. And at one point he's in a war camp in Italy and another point he's in a field hospital in England. But it's pretty basic brushstrokes. More, we're keeping our eyes on Clancy's story and Clancy's story as it pertains to Libby. So the bulk of the research that I did for Key of Love was about the Fairmont Copley Hotel here in Boston, which is like three blocks from my house. It was built in 1912. And it is one of the grandest, most beautiful hotels in the world. And I was obsessed with it. So I thought, how fun to set a story there and to be a chambermaid there and to get to know the whole back of house operation so that you could get to know this beautiful luxury hotel in a different way. So that was some of the research. And the other research that I did that I enjoyed immensely was I had to take singing lessons because Libby is a singer and I sing only in the shower and in my car and (laughs) I've always wanted to be a singer when I was a kid. I tried out for Annie on Broadway and I love to sing, but I had never had the experience of being an actual performer in that medium. So I took singing lessons with a woman named Arabella Berman, who is fantastic here in Boston. And that informed so much of what you hear in key. Okay. That's so fun. It was really fun. It was my favorite part of the week before I actually started writing and before the podcast started dropping. My favorite part of the week was to walk over to Arabella's studio, and she would teach me not really how to sing initially, but how to breathe. And there is an episode in Key of Love that features Frances and Libby with her relearning how to breathe and how to breathe properly. And it kind of ties into her self-image as it tied into mine. Like It was really fascinating stuff to think about how physical a medium performing is. Absolutely. Are you continuing your singing lessons? I will be, yes. I love them. What about Francis Key? Did you have to do any research related to him? Francis, I mean, the characters sort of stepped onto the page for me. I had been carrying them around for a long time. So when Jane asked me, would I write a podcast and an audio drama? I said, I think I might have a perfect turnkey, like no pun intended, project for this. And I always knew I wanted Francis to be a blue-blooded character, so to speak. He's related to FDR. More importantly, his ancestry is Francis Scott Key, who's the famous composer, which is why he's been assigned this task of writing this anthem to inspire the troops. And I was really interested when I was developing Francis, not so much into looking into his background, which I already sort of knew, but in developing his psychological profile. And I did that for each of these three main characters. And I knew that Francis was sort of an opaque character, like he's super, super charming. And he is dedicated to his art, to his music, but he's very cagey about his personal life, which turns out to be a problem for Libby once they start to get really, really involved. And I always find those contradictions and nuances in people, the most interesting things about them. So I really enjoyed writing his character. And I love the way the actor portrays him because he sounds like 
really demonically charming and like a little bit snaky and like sometimes smug. And I just think he, he brought him to life so beautifully. He definitely did. Let's talk a little bit about the psychological profiles. So you're creating a story and you go and create one for each of your main characters? I do, or at least I carry them in my head. But if you said, okay, Jenna, you have to sit down and write a page describing each person, I could do that. One thing that I always tell my novel students in my novel workshops is that for me, each character, whether it's a book or a podcast or a short story, stands for one essential trait. So Francis stands for being patrician. Libby in this podcast stands for ambition. Um, And Clancy stands for traditional values. So when I put those uh, characteristics all together and I plug them into the circumstances, then the characters kind of take on a life of their own. I hope that makes sense. It does make sense. It's interesting to hear how authors decide to develop their characters. And some seem to go through the process you're talking about of kind of knowing what's happening inside. And some seem to write and it comes out as they write. So I'm always just curious how that develops. Mm. For me, they never just come out as they write. They flesh out as they write. But to me, the characters are real people who walk around somewhere in the ether just above my head. And it's my job as the writer to get them down onto paper or in this case to audio. And it's one of the amazing joys of audio, whether it's an audio book or a podcast, or in this case, an audio drama, to hear your characters come to life with their voices. And especially in this medium, like I just, again, am flabbergasted listening to how amazingly well the actors took these characters and made them not like even three-dimensional, but like four-dimensional. Like they really are real people. Do they all sound the way you expected them to? They do actually. And do you know what a rarity that is? I think that too is a privilege because with an audiobook, if you don't have a male and a female narrator, what happens is even if the actors are incredibly good, and they are, they're all incredibly good. When the women read men, all the men kind of sound like Nathan Lane. And when the men read women, they all sound like they're in drag. So like to have your story brought to life with male and female actors, each one tailored for the part, that is a whole new experience. And the production director asked me to do a breakdown list. She's like, Clancy, what kind of accent does he have? How about Francis? How about Libby? How about her sidekick, Moxie? And we cast down to the smallest character in the whole podcast. And she cast with such care that the people actually sound exactly as I pictured them, except more so. So each person has a different actor. Each person has a different actor. In fact, when you hear the music, that's even done by a different person. There's a guy I know on Twitter who started, we started following each other and he said, I am the hands in the key of love, I do the music. I just thought that was so great. I'm like, nice to meet you, Hands. Thank you for your beautiful music. I like that, the Hands. And you had a Broadway composer compose the musical composition and the lyrics, correct? Yes, yes. That was something that Emerald did as well because the key of love is so music heavy, of course, because it's about a composer and a singer. We were really batting around before I wrote the, the script what the music would be like. And first they said, do you want to write the music? And I said, oh, as Libby would say, she's Norwegian American. She says, Helvete, which means hell. I said, oh, hell no. Helvete, no, I don't want to do that. I know nothing about composing music. And they said, do you want to do the lyrics? And I said, nope. (laughs) So they spared no effort and went out and got a Broadway composer to compose the song. I don't want to give away the name of the song and the title of the composition, but it is a Broadway originated piece of music, which is just so fantastic. Like what an honor for a writer to have this in her work. 
as a Broadway fanatic myself, that really caught my eye because I love to go to Broadway and see shows. And so I thought, how cool that they brought somebody in to do that for your show. Oh, same, right? I mean, I grew up listening to musicals. I was obsessed with My Fair Lady as a child, which probably shows a lot in Key of Love, too. There's a little Pygmalion slash My Fair Lady-ness to the Francis Libby relationship. But yeah, I just couldn't believe that they would go to these lengths to bring this audio production to life for the listeners. And I really, again, I hope everybody loves it as much as I do. I think it's just extraordinary. It really is. It's so much fun to listen to. And as I said earlier, it just... I don't know. There's something about it that makes me feel like we've come full circle, like those old radio shows that you sometimes can track down and listen to. I'm like, we're back to that again. And I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, really interesting. I remember I dated a photographer at one point who obviously contributed some material to Clancy. And I remember when I was sending him texts with emojis when emojis were new. And he said, it's so interesting that we have come so far with written language. And yet here we are back to hieroglyphics. Oh, I love that. And and I feel the same way about audio, that the earliest storytelling is people sitting around a fire talking about how they escaped the woolly mammoth and, you know, brought home their meal for the day, right? And so that is how we make sense of our lives is through these oral storytelling traditions. And so I think there's always a place for that in the human literary experience. And there's something very near and dear about having it all enacted for you. I think that's right. And I've always been obsessed with Golden Age Hollywood and those early radio shows and just kind of the beginning of the whole, I don't know, digital age that we live in and what it looked like then. So I just think it's really neat to see something that is much more advanced, but circling back to those kind of early ideas. Same, same. One of the episodes I listened to and then debriefed with Kristen was when I was at my house in rural Minnesota. I have a family house there and I was listening to the episode on an old radio and I was sitting there literally drinking Ovaltine that I had ordered from Amazon. But still, it was Ovaltine because I really wanted to have that like 1941 FDR fireside chat experience. And I think that the key of love is really transporting in that way. I think so too. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've either read or listened to recently that you really liked. Yes, absolutely. Actually, if you don't mind, I'm going to recommend three upcoming books that I am most looking forward to in 2023. Absolutely. Thank you. I can never do what I'm told. So I'm going to do something a little bit different. I actually prefer this because then it helps me see what's coming and know what to look for and all of that. And I know my listeners are the same way. Awesome. Thank you. So the first one in February is Pam Jenoff's book, Codename Sapphire. And Pam, as we all know, is a New York Times bestselling author of World War II and spy books. And she's so fantastic. And so her legions of fans can't wait for Codename Sapphire to come out. Um, I just got the galley of it yesterday. It's sitting on my ottoman, which is also my coffee table. And I'm going to dive into that starting tonight. So that's up in February. In March, March 14th, Pi Day, actually, there is a debut novel coming out called Daughters of Nantucket by Julie Gerstenblatt. And this is kind of like the real Housewives of Nantucket in 1868. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, thank you. It is the God's honest truth. So I had the great privilege of reading this when Julie was writing it in my novel workshop. And I was like, buckle up. This book is going to be absolutely huge because it's three women, very different women, whose lives converge on Nantucket during the Great Fire of 1868. So you have Mariah Mitchell, who discovered the comet. You have a sea captain's wife, and then you have a black abolitionist who was born a free woman on Nantucket. And so they're really, really different, and they somehow have to help each other survive this fire. And as Julie 
then said, holy F, and then fireballs. And so it's like this sort of fantastic Real Housewives of Nantucket meets disaster movie kind of book. So Daughters of Nantucket's coming out from Mira on March 14th. And the third book that I want to put on everybody's radar is coming out April 4th. And it is called Society of Shame by Jane Roper. And it just got a huge shout out yesterday in the Washington Post, which said, if you like lessons in chemistry, this is the book for you. So Society of Shame is about a mom slash political spouse who accidentally becomes an icon of cancel culture. And it's kind of like a Carl Hyacin book if Carl Hyacin were a woman and a mom and a political spouse. It is so freaking funny. You will cry with laughter when you're reading it. It's so clever. So that's Society of Shame by Jane Roper, and that is out on April 4th. So the first two are sitting on my bedside table, and they are very soon reads for me. And I don't even know the third one, and this is what I was saying. That's why I love it, because now I can go track that one down. It sounds really good. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for saying that. I think all of these books are going to be huge, Pam's, because Pam is always huge, deservedly so, and then Julie and Jane, because their books are just so freaking good. And it's always a joy to recommend good books by good people. And I love debuts. I think it's really fun to get in, I always say, on the ground floor with an author. Read them from the very beginning. I totally agree with that. And Julie, I maybe shouldn't say this, but I think she has a Nantucket trilogy. So if you love this Nantucket hist fic, you will be in on the ground floor. I actually think her book is going to be huge. Like that is my prediction. You heard it here first. And I think all the early indication for Jane's book, likewise, I think they're just going to be like the hottest books of the year. Okay, good. And we heard it here first. We heard it here first, as they say, on TV and radio and podcast and audio drama. Well, Jenna, as always, I love chatting with you. And I'm so glad you came back on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. And I can't wait for everybody to be listening to The Key of Love. Thank you so much. And I am delighted to be talking about a podcast on a podcast. It's very meta, but I'm always, always thrilled to be your guest. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, 
physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.